You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. This morning, we are actually going to be reading from a psalm. So we're going to be in Psalm 105 this morning. Um, And so if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn there with me? Um, And uh, if you don't have one with you, but you like a hard copy of the text, they should be uh, under the seats around you so you can grab one. Um, And then if you don't own that, uh, own a Bible at home, we just want to invite you to keep that as a gift from us. Um, So again, today we're going to be in Psalm 105. We're going to be reading two portions of the Psalm. So we're going to first read verse 1 through 6, and then we're going to skip down and read verses 26 through 36. So once you're there, if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Going down to verse 26, it says, He sent Moses a servant and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's daylight savings. I see that. All right. <laughs> My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And I just want to say uh, thanks for being here, especially if it's your first time. Thanks for making us a part of your week. We're very glad that you're here. <clears throat> we hope that you enjoy yourself. Uh, like Lauren said, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus since the beginning of this year, talking about the story of God's redemption of his people from the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. Now, uh, you might be thinking, uh, we just read from the Psalms. That's not Exodus. And I would say you are perceptive. And um, the reason for that is because now we're coming up on some serious action in the book of Exodus, namely the story of the plagues, the 10 plagues of the land of Egypt. And so it's covering three chapters, and we're going to be focusing on these 10 plagues over the course of the next two weeks. Now, the reason that we are in Psalms is because Psalm 105, um, it not, not only does it give us an overview of the uh, 10 plagues, it actually gives an overview from Abraham all the way to the conquest and the promised land. But we're focusing on these verses 26 through 36 because it gives us an overview of the plagues, tells us a little bit about what's going on. And so this morning, my goal is to take a 30,000 foot view. What is God up to in the story of Exodus, particularly in the plagues of the land of Egypt. And so we are going to talk about plagues, but it's impossible for us to 
to talk about the plagues or to understand the plagues without talking about idols. And if you weren't here last week, then that might seem a little odd to you, but I would encourage you, uh, go back and check out the podcast from last week because this directly follows what we discussed last week. But um, in short, God, the I am, Yahweh, is standing over and against Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt. And so in this standoff, it's not merely uh, let my people go, no, okay, I'll punish you. Um, There are things happening in the physical that are absolutely important. But what's happening in the spiritual, what's happening in the cosmic realm is the most important thing, and it is what infiltrates and motivates everything that happens in the physical realm. And so this standoff is not merely between two nations, Israel and Egypt. It's a standoff between a pantheon of gods, little g, and Yahweh, the I am. And so when we think about the plagues, we need to see it as that spiritual battle that it is. So before we jump in, though, what I need to do is we need to define idolatry. What is an idol? What does it mean to be an idolater? And the reason for this is so that we're all on the same page as we discuss how the plagues apply to the idols of Egypt and the idolatry of Egypt. This is a, a quote by John Piper. He says this, Idolatry starts in the heart. It is craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. Those last three words may be the most important to truly understand idolatry. God does not say in the scriptures that we ought not crave or desire something, want something, enjoy anything, or be satisfied by anything or even treasure anything, but that if those desires, the cravings, the wantings, the enjoyings, the being satisfied by something supplants in its order God himself, then we have idolatry problems. Augustine called idolatry a disordered love, meaning that there are many loves and we will love each other. Like if you're married, you love your spouse and that's a godly thing and a good thing and it should be encouraged. If you're a parent, you love your children and that's a godly and good thing given by God, and it should be encouraged. You should love your neighbor even as yourself, Jesus says, and that's a good thing, and it should be encouraged. Augustine would say, it's when any of the loves take the order that they ought not take. Or another way to put that would be, as John Piper says, if we're treasuring anything more than we treasure God. That's idolatry. And the reason that I wanted to define it as idolatry in this way is because when we look at the Old Testament, what we see, and particularly in Exodus and the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments that are given to Moses by God for the children of Israel have to do with idolatry, saying that you should worship and serve no other gods before me, God says of himself, and also that they ought not make graven images. These graven images were very common in the ancient world. Um, These were objects that were created in order to be the source of the worship of the people. And these idols, these gods, were embodied in these little objects that they would have in their houses. And they would worship the god through the object. These were symbols. These were materializations of what was going on in the heart. And so when we look at ancient cultures, it's easy to put ourselves as superior to them and say, well, we're not foolish enough to do something like that. But John Piper's definition of idolatry helps us to think of it rightly, which is that these are mere manifestations of that which is going on in the heart, which you and I can, can if you can't or are, or are unwilling to admit, that you can, what's the word I'm looking for? That you can jive with that, that you can understand that, that you can find common ground with the idea that you might love something greater than God, then I would 
dare say that maybe we're just not being honest. And so it's important to recognize idolatry as this, because if not, then we kind of pass by the idols of Egypt. And if you've ever studied the ancient Egypt, Egyptian culture, it's full of some very interesting, dark idolatry. So I want to focus on answering two major questions, and then I want to pray for us that God might help us. The first is this, how does God deal with idolatry in the Bible? Here's what we know. Sometimes we might read the Old Testament and say, man, God's so intense back then. I'm so glad we're in the New Testament now. And here's what I'll say. There's much to be said about being glad that you're in the new covenant now. But remember always that the Bible teaches us that God doesn't change. He is immutable. He is who he has always been. This is why when God is introducing himself to Moses by his personal name, he introduces himself as the I am, meaning the self-existent one. Later in Revelation, we'll see that Jesus is the one who was and the one who is and the one who is to come. There's a continuity in God's character that he doesn't change. So when we think about idolatry and how he deals with idolatry, we have to remember this about God, that it's not as though he changes his mind about his feelings toward idols. And then number two, how should we defend ourselves from idolatry if it is so dark and it is so difficult? So before we jump into the text, let me pray for us. And if you would bow your heads, I will. Father, thank you. Thank you that your word has been preserved for us for thousands of years, that we don't have to fumble around in the dark, but we can come to you. Your authoritative word stands. And so we ask now, would you humble our hearts that we might not lift ourselves in pride over and against and above the ancient peoples of the earth who were idolaters, but instead, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would uncover and expose the idols that are vying for our hearts even now. Help us to be freed from their bondage and to find life and joy and peace, forgiveness and grace in you and you alone. And we pray that we might be heralds of that good news as well. God, thank you that we have the truth readily available to us and help us not take that for granted, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I want to start by reading and starting in verse number 26. This is Psalm 105, verse number 26. It says this, He sent his servant and Aaron, whom he had chosen, and they performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. Now I want to pause for a second because that's very interesting. It's not the only time in Psalm 105 that the land of Ham is mentioned, but the land of Ham being where Egypt was, is an interesting geographical and archaeological fact that's pointed out by the psalmist. The Egyptians were a kingdom that to the first, the, the, the early ancient Jews and even to the Jewish people today would have been known to descend from Ham. And there's a reason for that. The Hebrew name for Egypt was Mitzrayim. And Mitzrayim is the word that they would use to describe Egypt as a land and as a people, which just so happens to be one of the four sons of Ham that is mentioned in Genesis 10, verse 6, meaning that it was through Ham that the Egyptian people came to be. Now, if you don't know why that would be significant, it's because in the book of Genesis, Ham was one of three sons of Noah who came off of the ark. And there's a really interesting story that comes about in Genesis after they step off the ark and after God has made his covenant with Noah and his sons. It goes something like this. Noah plants a vineyard after he gets off the ark with his sons. The Bible calls him a man of the soil. 
And then because we have a lot of kids in the room, I'll just say he enjoys the fruits of the vineyard a little too much. That's what the Bible says. Finds himself intoxicated and disrobed in his tent and unaware of his surroundings. The Bible records that Ham goes into his father's tent and not accidentally uncovered, the Bible says uncovers his father's nakedness. And then it says that he goes out from the tent and finds his two brothers and he derides his father to his brothers and dishonors his dad. His brothers, honoring their father, Shem and Japheth, take a sheet and they put it on their shoulders and they walk backwards into the tent, not looking at their father and they cover up his nakedness and they're blessed for it. So you have two sons that are blessed for their actions and Ham, who is cursed because of his actions. Now, there's so much to be said, and I don't have the time to do so, about what's actually going on here in the curse of him, what actually happens that he does that's so reprehensible. But here's what we know beyond a shadow of a doubt. His actions are deemed so reprehensible that his son Canaan is cursed as a servant of servants, and his lineage is then filled with idolaters all over the land, and Egypt becomes the first center for this idolatry the peak of this idolatry in the land of Egypt. And so the writer in Psalm 105, writing that God sent Moses and, his, and Aaron, whom he had chosen to go into the land of Egypt, the land of Ham, he would have been saying something like this. The land of Ham, your pride, your derision of my people will be turned on your own head. You will be dishonored. You will be shamed. Your nakedness will be exposed before the nations, just as your father Ham exposed his father's nakedness before the nations. The idea here would be that God's going to deal with idols by exposing them in order to free his people to worship him, and he will expose them publicly, the very thing that Ham did to his father he is going to receive back in the land of Ham. Now, how is this going to happen? That's the big question. Because if you remember last week, we talked about this. There's a spiritual battle that's being played out in the physical realm. It follows then that God will defeat the little g gods of Egypt through plagues of judgment, but that it's not just going to affect the spiritual realm. It will also affect the physical realm. And we see this kind of play out in the 10 plagues. So I have a chart here for you, and this is only because I don't have a ton of time. Um, But I thought it would be really necessary. I typically never do this because it's not really a lecture. It's a sermon. But in in this chart, what you'll see up here, is on the left-hand side, you'll see the 10 plagues. And then next to that, you'll see the Egyptian god or goddess that corresponds to the uniqueness of the plagues that God sends forth onto the land of Egypt. It goes something like this. God tells Aaron, take your staff, take it to the Nile, put it in the Nile, and the water will become blood. Well, there was just so happens to be an Egyptian god of the Nile, and he was also known as the god of the fish of the Nile. He was, much, he was represented in ancient Egyptian archaeology with a fish as his head. He was supposed to control the waters. God's first sign is that the Nile is not controlled by your false gods. The Nile is controlled by me. Your fish and your food is not controlled by your god. false gods. It's controlled by me, and all the fish die. And you can kind of go on. I don't have the time to go each one, but, you know, the next one is frogs, which seems really odd until you realize that they have a a goddess who walks around with the head of a frog, and she's the goddess of fertility, and the frogs go where? All the way into the king's chambers, meaning that there's an infestation everywhere in the society of idolatry, and God confronts the frogs, and what happens? They come out of the Nile, and then he kills all of them, and it's a stench in the whole land. Now, you can go on and on. They're they're very interesting. The most interesting ones are the bottom two, 
And the reason for this is because they kind of build on one another until the final ones, which is the land goes into complete darkness. That would have been a massive thing in the Egyptian culture because all of their gods centered around the rotation of the sun. And they believed that when the sun went down at night, that it went into the underworld and the gods had to do their job to bring the sun back around in in order for the sun to rise in the morning. And that's why their, their creator god, Atum, was a, was a solar god. And another god named Ra was a solar god. They, they combined the tomb into Atum Ra, who was this, this god who created himself out of nothing. Sound familiar? And was the god of the sun. And what does God do in the second to last plague? He says, darkness over all of the land where you can't even see your hands until I say it stops. Meaning that your gods can't make the sunrise any more than they can do anything apart from their derivative power that I give them. And then finally, we see the firstborn, which would be the firstborn of all of Egypt. And even Pharaoh dies because Pharaoh was the ruler, the God-man of Egypt. And if his son, or his firstborn son were to die, it would mean the lineage is cut off. Your gods are cut off. Okay. Now, why do I even point that out? Well, not only because it's interesting, but because I believe it's, it's uniquely important to the story of Exodus. There is a dual grip that idolatry brings into our lives, and it goes something like this. First, you and I are enticed to take hold of idols. We do this by submitting ourselves to these idols, trusting that they will give us what they promise to give us. We reach out and we take hold of these idols. The most obvious example of this is in the garden itself. Eve is enticed by the serpent that if she would to take hold of the fruit and eat of it, that she will be made wise. She will be made like unto God even. And so she takes hold and so does her husband and they eat. It's the first grip of idolatry. But the second is the one that we miss and it's the most deadly of all. It's because once we've made that decision to take on the idol and we may think it's small, the idol takes grip of you. The idol weaves itself into our very being. It causes us to be bound at a spiritual and a visceral level. We've seen this in our own lives. It's when we think we can do just a little bit of something and then we can't stop. Why can't I? We've even used words like addiction and other things to describe this, but ultimately it's a spiritual binding that happens. That which you have taken a hold of has taken a hold of you. Of course, you got the famous Brad Pitt, right? Fight Club quote. He says, the things that you own end up owning you. And he's talking about materialism, but that's just one of the many idols that exist that want to own us. God's way of addressing the grip of idolatry is to expose these idols as empty and as void of the power they claim to have. Now, I say the power they claim to have because if you remember last week, we covered this. We do not believe as Christians that idols and false gods have no power. No, We believe that idols and false gods have derivative power, only that which God has permitted them to exercise. In other words, Satan is on a short leash. And if God pulls, he cannot go any further. This is why often in the scriptures, you'll see Satan asking for permission to do things. But hear me on this. The idols never tell you that story. They say they have all power. I can do anything for you. I can fix everything for you. So how does God expose the idols? He does so by operating as a good father. Now you may look at the plagues, you may say, this is really overkill. Why doesn't God just, you know, do one thing, kind of expose it all? Like this seems to be way intense to do it this way. Here's what I'll say. Although the plagues of Egypt are serious and you look at the plagues of the Bible, you're just, you should be shocked by them. I would also say that when you see them in their context, they may be the most gentle thing that God could have done in relation 
to what the Bible tells us about the severity of sin. An example of this might be, he did flood the whole world over this issue once. So let's consider that in light of what he does here. And if you're a parent, I think you're going to get this. Why do I say he acts like a good father here? If you're a parent, you've probably done this before. Let's say your child's young, two or three. They get to a point where they start thinking they can dress themselves. We all experience this. And that they don't need your help with it. <laughs> uh, some children are more ornery than others. My, my son, he's, let's just say, he, he doesn't struggle with self-confidence. And so he thinks, let me do it, Dad. Let me do it, you know. And you might do something like this. You're in a hurry. You're not going to be able to do that without my help, son. Let me do that, right? And then you might receive that stubborn response. You're saying to them, just as God is saying to Egypt, he gives the call of truth. You're not going to be able to do this. He's given an opportunity to repent, humble yourself. But at some point as a parent, you usually get to this point, right? It sounds something like this. Fine, go for it. Do it yourself. Now, if you, if you have a child like mine, they will take a sweater, put it on his pants, and walk right into school. They don't care one bit. They think they look good. And so there's trouble on the horizon there. But for the most part, what you'll see is you're, you're allowing and permitting your child to have measured pain in order to understand the deeper reality. And I say this because we never say a good parent would be uh, permitting your child to run out into 59 so they can have their own way. Like, that's a terrible parent because that's not measured pain. God does something like this. Your idols are lying to you. Your idols are deceiving you. Your idols are destroying you. Humble yourself, Pharaoh, and let my people go. Stop enslaving these people. And then one way to look at the plagues is, okay, fine, have the fill of your idol. Have your idol in its fullness. You want the God of the Nile to get what it really wants from you, your, your Nile will be blood because that's what it's really after. You might be saying something like this to the Pharaoh. You think I'm kidding, Pharaoh. Your idols convinced you to create an edict over all the land to kill children and throw them in the Nile. The Nile's already full of blood. You just aren't willing to admit it. You see, idols are empty of life-giving power, but they are full of life-taking bondage. This is what the writer of Psalm 105 is getting at when he writes... And let's read through them, Psalm 105, and I want to start now in verse 28. He starts with the first, or the ninth plague, but he mentions it first. He sent darkness and made the land dark, and they did not rebel against his words. Your idolatry promises light and knowledge, but idols always bring darkness and folly. They promise to give you more insight. It will make you wise. But what really happens is you fall into darkness and know not God. Verse 29, he turned to their waters into blood and he caused their fish to die. Idolatry promises life, but it kills the very life that exists in it. Verse 30, their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. Idolatry infests every area of a society in the same way that it infests every area of your heart. Don't think that idols will be compartmentalized into one area of your life. This I'll keep hidden from my wife. This I'll keep hidden from my spouse. This I'll keep hidden from my friends. This I'll keep hidden from my community. And it'll stay there. They never stay in the closets that you put them in. They infect everywhere, even the king's chambers, the innermost seat of authority and intimacy. The frogs were there. He spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. 
The reason that I like the translation, and I put it on the chart of lice instead of gnats, which King James uses, is because lice, if you look them up, they feed on their host by sucking their blood, and they can't exist apart from it. Idols are life suckers. Can't, they cannot exist apart from taking the life that is yours. They need a host, another way to put it. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. Hail for rain. In other words, idolatry turns providential blessing into divine judgment. The rain that was meant to care for the crops is actually turned to hail, which destroys the crops. He struck down their vines and their fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke and the locusts came, young locusts without number. And I spent a lot of time uh, studying on the different plagues. One of the things I... I Spent way too much time, to be honest. You go down a wormhole, right? Locusts, craziest animals that you could ever imagine. I mean, look this up later. Uh, not, not only are they creepy looking, like Google image this one, but they are very interesting animals. Locusts can stay by themselves for the entirety of their life and never be bothered to get into swarms. But something happens when these locusts get around one another is what the scientists say, and they can't explain it. They become almost militant. They get into swarms, and millions of them will go to a specific land and devour it. They're like, they're not all that aggressive, all alone, and then all of a sudden, boom, they swarm up into millions and just destroy a land. And this has been happening for a long time. God says, the idols that you worship consume, and they are never satisfied. They want more and more and more. You ever wondered that? You ever had that, that idol, that sin struggle, that addiction? That you, it always wants something more, something newer, something worse. It's because it's leading to the final one, which is mentioned here in verse 36. He struck down all the firstborn in their land and the first fruits of their strength. In other words, idolatry finally will always demand what is dearest to you. It wants the most. Why is that? An idol must demand what is nearest and dearest to you so that it can finally claim the throne of your heart ultimately. Unless there's nothing else but it that you worship, it has not succeeded. And so God exposes these idols, not merely as empty in the power they offer, but as deadly. But we need to remember this because you think of Egypt and you think of Israel and oftentimes you're, you're mixed up and you think, okay, God's trying to get Israel out from this idolatrous evil land. The answer to that is yes, but there's a deeper desire from God and it's this, you'll see it as they continue through the desert. God intends not only to drive Israel out of the idolatrous land of Egypt, he intends to drive the idols of Egypt out of the hearts of Israel. One will take mere months, days. The other will take 40 years. Christian, this is a a one-to-one comparison for us. God saves you in an instant. It'll take your life as he drives and purges the idols out from you. (laughs) He'll take you out of the land of bondage, but we're still, Egypt's still working its way in us, isn't it? Okay. So lastly, how do we guard the gate? If we know that they're deadly, then how do we guard the gate? How do we defend ourselves from this kind of idolatry? Well, this is why I wanted to read the first six verses of Psalm 105, because it gives us a hint as to how to do this. If you're a note taker, this might be good for you to say, maybe the top six ways for you to guard the gate. Let's start in verse one. Oh, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Thanksgiving. 
Idols have a hard time taking root in the heart that is grateful to God. It's the heart that's ungrateful and craving that the idols, whoop, this is my opportunity. Make known his deeds among the peoples. There's something about being evangelistic, missional about your faith that guards you from the idols. They don't like to be around it. You see this in the book of Acts. Paul the apostle, every time the demons are around him, or maybe most prevalently Jesus, they always say things like, why are you here? Leave from me, son of man. Or they'll say to Paul, you know, what are you doing here? They don't like being around it. Verse two, sing to him. Brendan will love this. Sing to him, sing praises to him. (laughs) Worship and particularly actually song worship has a way of driving out idols and guarding us from the idols because to articulate the truth about who God is, the darkness flees. There's a light to it. Tell all of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name and let the hearts of those who seek the Lord, listen to this word, rejoice. Here's all for all my Christian Eeyores. Have more fun. In Christ, it's a command. Rejoice. I challenge you if you struggle with the cloud that always follows you to read Philippians this week. And when you get done with it and you wonder why I told you, read it again. Rejoice. Rejoice. There is a holy laughter that scorns the devil. Martin Luther talked about this often, that the enemy cannot bear derision, and when we rejoice in Christ, it shames him. Have more fun. Have more fun. Verse four, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. A life marked by prayer, humbly in the presence of God, wards off the idols. And then finally, remember the wondrous works that he has done. Remembrance, remembrance, remembrance. And that's where I want to end. The reason I want to end there is because we're about to do it in just a minute here with communion. Jesus said that communion was every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. When we remind one another of the covenant of God, we remind one another of the gospel. There is a spiritual sacredness, holiness to it. Something unique is going on in the moment of remembrance as God stirs our affections for him all over again. And it's in that stirring of our affections for God that the affections for idols start to die. It's why I believe that in the communion act, there's actual tasting. I can't help but think of the psalm. Taste and see that the Lord is good. There's nothing more impactful than for a human being being constantly inundated with idolatrous offers than to taste and see that the Lord is superior to those offers as ramen is superior to a filet mignon. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I didn't mean to offend vegetarians. (laughs) Ramen is inferior to beyond meat or whatever that thing is. I don't know what it is. Last text, Colossians chapter two. I wanted to go here last week. Didn't get a chance to because of time. So I wrote it in my notes. We're here now, baby. Colossians two. What's at the heart of the plagues? 
Here's my contention. The plague, the plague story is a shadow of what is to come in Christ Jesus. The plague story is showing us the severity of idolatry that, is, that has plagued the whole world. You see, we focus on the plagues that judge the idolatry. God's uncovering the plague that is idolatry. And that it's not just the land of Ham, but it's the land unless God in, intervenes. And so what we see in the New Testament is that Christ becomes the shining light in the land of darkness and that he handles the plagues once and for all that were meant for us. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. I'm just going to walk through this to 15, and then we're going to pray. He says, see to it, this is defending the gate, that no one takes you, check this word out, captive, binds you, imprisons you, grips you. By what? What are, you, what are we worried about, Paul? By philosophy? Here's the next word. By empty deceit. What are the idols? Empty deceivers. According to human tradition, here's that spiritual word, word again, elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. How do they do it? They make us doubt this truth in verse nine. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. The fullness of the one true God is manifest us in the person of Christ, not in a pantheon of 200 gods, not in the 2,000 gods the Egyptians worshiped, not in the myriad of ways that you are tempted to worship every day, but it dwells bodily in the person of Jesus Christ. Who in him, he is the head and the rule of all authority. They claim their authority, they show their power. God is the head in Christ. He rules, he reigns. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You've been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But listen to this, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all the trespasses. Very simply put, all of that old idolatrous mess gets put to death in the death of Christ. And this is signified when we unite him by faith in the work of baptism and we go into the watery grave and out into the newness of life. Paul's reminding you that you're dead to that now, but he doesn't stop there. Verse 14, Jesus put it all away by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This we need to ponder on. You see, it's not just Egypt that deserved the plagues, it's humankind all those who were born of Adam, Paul will later say, he will say, in Adam all die. The plagues have been set aside for us, filling a cup from Adam until Christ. A cup was being filled of that which you and I all deserved. And perhaps we got certain shot glasses full of it in certain judgments from God, but the cup continued to fill to the brim until Christ came and in the garden of Gethsemane said, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass. But nevertheless, Father, your will, not mine, be done. And he drank of the cup dry of the plagues that were for us. That was the debt that was demanded. He sets it aside, nailing it to the cross in his own body. He drinks it so that then it could be nailed to a tree forever. And in so doing, verse 15, he disarmed, here's that spiritual word, rulers and authorities, 
He disarmed them. He took their guns away. He took their powers away. He took the way they could harm you away. And then he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The cross is the ultimate triumph where Christ chooses not to pour out the plagues, but to drink them fully and then take our place. And all the idols say, we got him. And Christ rises from the dead and they say, we lost forever. The reason I want to end here is this. Don't think it a coincidence that the night before Jesus died, he offered you and I a cup. He knows he's headed to drink of a cup, but he offered us a cup. And he said it like this. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This is the trade-off of Christ. He'll drink the cup of the plagues himself, and he'll offer you the cup of mercy. And here's the thing. We drink it every Sunday in remembrance of Christ. And so here's what I want to do. I want us to do so. And as we drink of it, I want to pray, and I want to ask, Holy Spirit, the Egypt that's still in us, purge it out. And Jesus, as we drink of your cup, help us to remember that the judgment that was reserved for us no longer hangs over our head because of your grace. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, all of those under the sound of my voice who have yet to receive freely this gift that you're offering, I pray, God, would you draw them now to receive freely of the gift of the cup of the new covenant in your blood, which is mercy. Thank you, Jesus, that you drank of the cup that was our punishment. That we no longer have to fear because you've turned to us and called us friends. And finally, my God, now as we take in reflection of the cup and of the bread, we ask all that is idolatrous, all that is the land of Egypt still vying for our affections, we ask now, would you drive it out of our hearts in mercy so that we might be freed to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.